Romans 10. In the last few weeks, I've done, hopefully, Romans 9 and 10, some sense of justice in trying to explain what it is that Paul was attempting to get across to us and to his brothers, the Jews. Um, those of you who are sports fans, uh, you will know this term, 30 for 30, uh, if you watch ESPN. 30 for 30, typically it, it highlights either an individual or a team of time gone by and goes back and tells you the story of where they came from. Maybe it was a particular game, uh, a championship. And what they'll do is they'll go back and they'll explore the history of how they put the team together and how it all came together and all through the playoffs and all the things that were going on behind the scenes. Uh, for As we go and we watch, say, a Super Bowl, or right now the NBA championships are on, and, and right now uh, you know the NHL playoffs, the Stanley Cup finals are on, and it bums me out that the Lightning lost again last night. I know it bums me out. They're down three to two, but hey, they can still come back and they have shown the propensity to do that all through the playoffs. But here's the thing. One thing that happens is that uh, if you've been watching these playoffs and watching the Lightning and you're any kind of a fan, they have a goalie. His name is Ben Bishop. And there's been something that's wrong with him. And we don't know what's wrong with him. We know that something's wrong, but uh, in the NFL, you have to report injuries. In the NHL, So everybody's in the dark to what is wrong with the goalie. And so he came out, brought himself, got himself out of one of the games and then went back in and came back out and went back in and, and uh, or he came back out and stayed out for the remainder of the game, I'm sorry, and let his backup, who actually is a rookie and has only played like 13 games all year long. And here he is on the biggest stage of the world for hockey and here he is uh, playing his very first playoff game in the Stanley Cup Finals. It's, it's an intense thing that's going on. And then he ended up starting the next game. And, and then last night, uh, Ben Bishop was back in the, in the net. He was a goalie last night, but we still don't know what's wrong with him. And so we, until the playoffs are over, uh, the coach, John Cooper, said, you'll know what happened and what's going on after the playoffs are over. I'll talk to you next week. And, and so, uh, here's the thing. One of the things about 30 for 30 is that we can go back and, and, and it explores. And right now, as we're kind of in the dark, it kind of fits uh, you know, this, this scenario well. As we look at the lightning, we don't really know what's going on, but we're hoping for the best. We just kind of, we don't really know. We're not in the know. We just see it being played out right before our eyes, but we don't know the behind the scenes things that are going on. Now, 30 for 30 goes in. What? You take it by faith. You take it by faith. Yeah, they, yeah. And, and so here's the thing. We, we don't know. We hope that they're going to win, but as much as we're hoping that they're going to win, all the Chicago Blackhawk fans are hoping that they're going to win, you know? And so I'm not a big proponent. Lord, help the Lightning to win, because what is that doing to my Chicago brothers and sisters? If there are such a Christian that is a Chicago fan. I don't know. But there, I'm sure there are some Christians that are Chicago fans. I'm just joking. So, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. We're looking behind the scenes. We don't know. We just see what's going on. But a 30 for 30 moment, here in a couple of years, maybe 10 years, maybe 15 years down the road, a 30 for 30 will be produced and put together and it'll talk about this Lightning's Stanley Cup championship season where they came back from three games to two and won the thing, four games to three. Now here's the thing. What happened? How did the team get built up? How did all these things happen? We begin to see all the behind the scenes. We begin to see all of the detail. We begin to see the heart behind why they did the certain things that they did. We begin to see all of the things that we, knew, we don't see now. We will see. Well, today, 
as we, and not just today, but as we have been going through chapters 9, or, uh, yeah, 9, 10, and 11, and we haven't hit 11 yet of Romans, as you have been instructed by me that over the last few weeks, is that chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans is kind of a parenthetical passage that Paul kind of pulls out and he talks to the Jews, if you will, if you will. And there's so much that we can glean from it. And there's much as we as Gentiles, and there might be Jews in this room, and, and I, I'm sure that there are. But here's the thing. You can learn from too, and, and it's for us to all learn something that is kind of this parenthetical mind of, of Paul. But this is what he was going through at the time. There was a lot of people that were looking at what Paul was doing and how Paul was doing it, and they didn't understand all the the behind-the-scenes things that were going on. All that they knew is that this one who formerly persecuted the way unto death. Now, anytime the Bible says the way, uh, the church actually was called, not the church, they weren't called the Christians back, you know, in, in the beginning. Do you know that we were actually called the way? The way. And so Paul, he persecuted the way unto death even, into prison, beatings, intimidation. Paul did this when he was Saul the Pharisee, Saul the Sanhedrin. And so here's the thing. God grabbed a hold of Saul's heart. He changed his name to Paul. And then... Paul began to live his life in front of not just the Gentiles, not just in front of the church that would come to know Christ through Paul and through the other disciples, but he also was living this life before the Jews. And everyone was looking upon this enigma who was Paul, an incredibly bright man, an incredibly academic mind, who once was excelling above all of the other Pharisees according to his own words. I excelled above them all. He had the greatest mentor in Gamaliel. He had learned so much. He had been at the top of the game in both camps. Think about it for a minute. He was in the top of the game in, the, in, the, in, in Judaism. He was at the top of the religious game in Christianity. And he knew both sides like the back of his hand. He, well, I, I hate that explanation because right now, if right now I were to say, sit on your hands and tell me what the back of your hand looks like, none of us would know, right? I don't know. How many freckles do you have on the back of your hand right now? I don't know. You know, I don't know. Is there a scar on your hand? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, probably. I know I've scarred my hands up. How many scars do you have? I don't know. So I don't know the back of my hand really all that well so that analogy never works for me but Paul knew it so well he knew it so well and as we watch Paul's life and as we see Paul writing in Romans chapters 9 through 11 we we see something that's going on and what Paul's doing is he's saying here's what I want you to do I want you to understand the 30 for 30 moment right now I'm going to give you the behind the scenes mind of what I know as being on the top of the game in Judaism and on the top of the game in Christianity. You you hear what I'm saying? On the top of the game in both of the camps, I'm going to tell you what I have found out. And I want my Gentile brothers and sisters to know and I want my Jewish brothers and sisters to understand this is what I see, this is what I know, this is what God has done. And this is how it all makes sense. The Old Testament and the New Testament, how do they parallel one another? How is it that they intersect? How is it that they match themselves together so seamlessly? How is it that they're bound together and there is no break in the heart and the mind of God between the Old and the New? Some of you have probably understood the Old Testament and you've heard people say, well, the Old Testament, you have the wrath of an angry God. In the New Testament, we have the grace and the acceptance of a loving God. And even as I prayed just here a few minutes ago, God was just as loving and just as gracious as he was 
in the New Testament as he was in the Old. God says, I am the Lord God. I change not. There's nothing that I have changed. I haven't changed. What changed is that my word was changed by man in order to fit man's ideals. Ideals and ideology. Romans chapter 9, it talks about that, doesn't it? It talks about how Paul, he's saying to the Jews. Romans chapter, chapter 9 talks about election. How God elected certain individuals to be his. And, and Paul, Paul identifies to the Jews and he's speaking to the Jews and he goes, now here's the 30 for 30 moment. Here's from me being on top of the Jewish, Jewish religious sect and here's me being on top of the Christian sect. Here's the thing, uh, on, on both of these faiths, here's me being on top of both of them. Let me tell you what I know, what you know, Jews, on top of, of, of the Jewish religion, Judaism. Let me tell you what you know. Because I know it. As much, if not more, than you do. Here's what you know. God elected Abraham. You were good with that because you were of the seed of Abraham. God elected his son, Isaac, over Ishmael. And to us Jews, Paul says, we're good with that. Because we're of the line of Ishmael, or of, 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 stop that, of Isaac. Man, I could have just started a big World War Three in here, you know. Us Jews, Paul would say, we were okay with God's election because we were of the line and lineage of Isaac. And when God chose the younger over the older, in Jacob over Esau, we Jews, we're good with that because we're of the lineage of Jacob. We were good with that. And when God chose Moses over Pharaoh, because he, he, he highlights Moses and Pharaoh in Romans chapter 9, he goes, when, when God chose Moses over Pharaoh, over a world political system, we Jews, we're good with that because we were of the lineage of Moses. We were, Moses was a leader of our people, whereas Pharaoh wasn't. We're good with that. But Paul says, where you stumbled, what you call the scandal is when God elected something that you didn't want him to elect. When it didn't fit your election mindset, when all of a sudden, election, God elected to send a Messiah, you didn't like the Messiah. You didn't like God's choice. And because you didn't like God's choice, you put him to death. Paul would say, we put him to death. I cast my lot in putting him on the cross. And, and so here's the thing. As long as God chooses the way that you want him to choose, and as long as God chose the way we, Paul would include himself, that we were liking God to choose because we were the benefactors of it, we're good with it. But the moment that God began to talk about a Messiah that would suffer, yeah, we weren't, we weren't down with that one. And so now we're going to change the mindset. It's kind of what we are going through here as Christians today in our society. It's what we prayed about here early this morning. In our society right now, we're taking the word of God and we're ripping pages out of the Bible because it doesn't fit our socially accepted culture. Whatever the culture is that says it's okay for us to be this way, it's okay to do this, it's okay to do that, it's okay to indulge in this, or it's okay to, to do whatever it is that we want then we're good with that. If, if the gospel says anything that we're doing today is, is something that we are doing, it, it, if the gospel, if the Bible say that it's wrong, we're going to change it in order to fit our mindset. And here's the thing. 
power in numbers. If we all agree, it must be right. If we all say, hey, we all agree. If our college campuses say, and our professors say, yeah, God's okay with that, or there isn't a God. Well, society goes, well, there isn't a God. Let's just say that this is a fictitious book. We don't want to, if, if I, if there, even the academic minds, they say, listen, if the Bible is true and there is a God, we're in trouble. And so let's consider that there isn't a God. And then we're not bound by this and we can live in our sin any old way we want. And now I'm hoping to God. No, I can't hope in God because I don't believe in him. So I hope that I'm right. Reminds me of this story that, you know, uh, the Buddhist that was, was, you know, his airplane, he was flying in an airplane and something happened and his airplane started on fire and he thought, I don't want to burn to death. I'd rather, I'd rather die falling and dying on the ground and enjoy at least one last dive before burning to death in this airplane. And I, I, he jumps out. The airplane was sure to die. It was go down, and he was going to die and, and be burned up in the airplane. He was going to die anyway, so he thought, I'm going to jump out. And as he jumps out, he's falling down, and he's screaming, and all of a sudden he goes, Oh, God! Oh, God, help me! God, help me! God, please, please help me! God, please help me! I'm falling. I'm going to die. Oh, God, please, please, please help me! And then all of a sudden this big hand comes out, and poof, 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 kind of, slows him down and stops him just a thousand feet above the ground. And he just stops and he's just kind of hovering in air. He's going, and he's not falling anymore. And he goes, oh, thank Buddha. And the hand goes, I'm just joking. <laughs> as long as God fits our mindset, we're good. But if, if God is, if, if we don't believe in God, then we don't have to believe in his word. And so that's one of the ways that we, in, that, that in academic circles, in many of our colleges, it used to preach God. They actually are adamantly opposed. They're actually atheistic. And I, I don't really truly believe in a true atheist. Everybody has a God. A God might be you. If you don't believe in God, I believe you believe in you then. You believe in you. You are the one. And, and, and so you have a God. It just so happens to be you. And, and I feel sorry for you because that's sad. You stink. That's why you have to shower every day. You stink. We stink. We all got up and showered today, hopefully. We all put on deodorant, right? Probably. If you didn't, you probably don't have anybody sitting around you right now. And if you don't have anybody sitting around, it doesn't mean you don't have to go around. It just might mean that you're sitting by yourself. I don't know. I just, here's the thing. We, use, we spend a lot of money on perfume. We spend a lot of money on, on deodorants. We put, spend a lot of money on, on scented shampoos and things like that. Why? Because we stink. We smell. We're flesh. When you die, you stink. You ever smelt a dead you know, corpse of an animal on the side of the road? It stinks. You go, well, you know, let, let's not say that the animal, that, you know, that, that a human is like an animal. Listen, I, I don't want to get into smelling a dead human, but it's bad too. It's really, really, really bad. We stink really bad. And so if you're a God, if you don't believe in God, you are the God and you stink. You can't even make yourself not stink. Those that say, well, I'm a self-made man. I don't know. What part of the liver did you make of you? You didn't make anything of you. And yet you, you rely on you. So I, I don't really believe in true atheists. But in our society, we have in many of our colleges, we have professors that have abandoned God because it doesn't fit a life that they want to live. A life of science. And a friend of mine one time that was a marine biologist, he said, the reason I have a hard time with Christianity and the reason I embrace science 
is that Christianity is stale because it never changes. But science, it always shows that it changes. It's constantly evolving. We're constantly finding out more. I said, is that really what you want to? And that was my question to him was, is, is that really what you want to hold on to? Something that's not sure? Something you, you espouse and you pour your whole heart into science because it's ever-changing. What can you ever truly put a boat anchor down and say, hey, I'm going to fix myself to this statement in science because it's true, when in all actuality, science is always changing. You know, back when I was growing up in, in, in school, elementary school, the world was like 800 billion years old. Today, it's like 200 billion. I don't think I've lived for 600 billion years. But science has changed. And so if you espouse science, you're espousing something that is ever-changing. You're learning more of it. Kind of like the, 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 sta- the illustration of you know, theologians or, or scientists and philosophers climb this mountain to enlightenment. And when they reach the peak of the mountain on top, wanting to find the answers, there they find Christ. There they find God. For he's always been there. He's never, ever not been there. I am the Lord God. I change not. There's nothing that changes in me. You want something sure to hold on to? Hold on to God. Here's the thing. Paul's going back and he's going, you were sure that God kept electing you and 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 you you were good as long as it only included you. It was all inclusive to you. But the moment that your that the election of God happened to include the Gentiles, happened to include a savior that would come upon the scene that would not fit your mold, you rejected God. Much like we are today. When God doesn't fit our lifestyle, we reject him. Now I just have to beg I, I beg to ask you this question, and, and it's this. If the Bible is true and you and I and all of the world reject what the Word of God says, which is true, does that make God any less God? No. Does that make God's plan any less God's plan? No. Does that make the Bible untrue? Because we all agree that it's not true. No. Because man is not the standard. God is the standard. And at the moment that we make God not the standard, we can come up with anything. We can come up with any form of philosophy that we want that will tickle our scratch or tickle our itch. You know, it will tickle us in a way that makes us feel good about ourselves. And here's what really makes us feel good about ourselves is if I'm feeling good about myself, even though my life is in contradiction to what the Word of God says, I want you to listen to this. Listen to this carefully. When we... And our life is living in contradiction to what the Word of God says. We can truly feel good about ourselves when everyone around us accepts us for who we are and for how we are and for why we are. Because they are like me also. And so I like it when everybody says, You're right. I'm going to, I, you are doing, you're living your own life. Great, that's wonderful. Here's the thing. That, that's, that's neat, that's fine, that's dandy, but you still are living your life in contradiction to the word of God. So if man accepts you, you're, you're seeking man's approval, but you're rejecting God's approval. Now, the problem with that is, is that if you're seeking man's approval, All you have to do is go back in history and look at mankind and you'll see how fickle mankind is. All you have to do is look at the Bible and find out that God is not fickle. God changes not. Just because God might not do things the way that you want him to do things doesn't mean that he's not God. And just because he might not do things the way that you want him to do it 
and, and you threaten, if he does it this way, I'm going to reject him and I'm going to walk away from him. Well, that doesn't make him any less God. That just makes you lost. That just makes you hopeless without God. Now, does God enjoy that? No, absolutely not. As I said in my prayer, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God loves mankind, every single last one of them. We sit here, we look at these ISIS members over there that are beheading Christians, and we're sitting there going, oh God. Be with those Christians and comfort them. Be with their families that have seen such atrocities happen and kick the teeth into those ISIS members. And you know what? There is a justice of saying, Lord, that's wicked. Come against it and wipe that evil out. But if any of you have been watching the news anytime lately, you're starting to see that some of these ISIS members, they're starting to have visions of Christ in their dreams. Much like Paul had on the way to Damascus. How many in the Christian church wanted Paul to die? Because he was the one of the greatest antagonists against the Christian church. Killing Christians taking Christians out, breaking families up, sending people to prison because they believe in God or because they believe in Christ. And yet God had a different plan for Paul, didn't he? Didn't he? Had a different plan to reach in. And so as we look at these ISIS members, let's not lose sight of the fact. Let's not get so caught up in what's, in the, in the, you know, what's on the surface. Let's get down deep. Understand there is an evil in this world. And these guys have bought into the evil of what it is that they're doing. But God loves them just as much as he loves you. I know that's hard for you to understand. And I know it's hard for me to understand. It's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? You're telling me that that guy that took that long blade and, and cut the head off of that Christian and dropped him down headless, letting him pour out his blood right before his kids. You're saying God loves him just as much as he loves me? I don't want anything to do with a God like that. Romans chapter 9 is for you. Because all of a sudden, God doesn't fit your mold. God loves that guy. This is radical, man. This is radical, isn't it? Wait a minute. You're telling me that... You're telling me that that God loves those guys? This is just wild for my mind, man. You're telling me that God would want to change them? He wants to give them an extra chance even though they've killed so many? How is it possible? I can't fathom that. And if that's the case, I want nothing to do with God. Slow down. Be careful. That's exactly what Paul was trying to do with the, in Romans chapter 9 to the Jews. Because God didn't fit your mold, you rejected he who God sent. And by rejecting he who God sent, you rejected God. And so Paul's saying, Romans chapter 10, he says, my heart and desire and my prayer to God for Israel, my brothers, is that they may be saved, verse 1. I'm going to read through this. I'm going to comment on some of these. I'm going to try to help us to understand what Paul's talking about here. I've set up a foundation. I set up a foundation last week. I've tried to, been, being, to, to set up a foundation for us to go through chapter 10. Hopefully I've done it halfway justice. Here's the thing. Let's read chapter 10 now in light of what we understand about Paul. Paul's saying, because you Jews have not liked the way that God wanted you didn't like the way that God had planned it out, that way that God has elected. And there are a lot of people that will take Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, and they'll use it, oh, that's the God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility chapters. And they just focus on these three chapters, and that's what their life involves, three chapters. Hypercalcus, these are our three chapters of our doctrine. I want to argue! Don't argue over, you are not going to be saved if God didn't choose you. 
I used to like to argue with Calvinists. Used to. I don't like it anymore. I don't take much joy in it anymore. I don't do it much anymore. The Bible college that I went to was run by a, prior to me being there, about a year and a half before I got there, was run by a hyper-Calvinist. And they replaced him by a guy who wasn't a hyper-Calvinist at the time. Um, and uh, when, <laughs> when it, who, the guy actually became my mentor, um, He's kind of slipped a bit over the last few years, but needless, you know, don't want to get into that. But right now, you know, back in that time, man, the dude was solid, and I loved the guy, and still love him to this day. But, but when he got in there, um, he was the director of the college, and and uh, Pastor Chuck had handpicked him to be there, you know, and he was there, and and he got thrown into the midst of a school that was just filled with hyper Calvinists, and all they wanted to do was argue. And Larry, my mentor, he would get up in class and he'd teach a study and it could be in, you know, John 3.16. It could be anywhere in Scripture. Hey, let's talk about, you know, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Larry does a whole message on, on God creating the heavens and the earth. And then he goes, and then Larry would open up, you know, at the very end of classes, usually an hour and a half long class. And so he'd leave about 20 minutes at the end. He'd teach for about an hour and 10 minutes. And then he'd leave about the last 20 minutes. And he'd go, hey, last 20 minutes, is there any questions in here? And he said, it was, it was before I got there, but he said, every hand, almost every hand in that, in that auditorium raised. And he'd start answer, asking questions. 90% of the questions had to do with Romans chapters 9 through, 10, through 11. His views on Calvinistic and Arminius doctrine. And there's just argues, 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 argues to a point where he got so frustrated because all that these guys did is ever, ever did was just study, 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 and study, and study, and study in order to, to prove their point, to prove their point, to prove their point. So much so that Larry said, okay, on this night, we're, or on, on this day, what we're doing is we're canceling class, and you will all, it's mandatory, to meet up on the third floor. And the third floor of our of our main building there was the game room said you have to come up here and you have to play a game or you will fail this class they were livid they were livid you can't make me go up and have fun no i can't i am the director you will stop where i'm going to shut the library you may not go to the library you must come up and you must have fun what do you mean i gotta have fun i don't have to have fun nowhere in the bible does it say i have to have fun yeah, man, let's not go down that road. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to do what you guys are doing. Get up there and have fun. They were steamed. Many of them left, but there were many of them that were still there when I got there. But as, as time went on, I, and I started working for the college after I graduated and what have you, I'd be walking along, you know, 11 o'clock at night, you know, going into the, you know, cafeteria, you know, grab some coffee and what have you, and you'd see off in this corner over here, you'd see some of these Calvinists that were over there, and they'd have three or four other people over there, two or three, or maybe even just one. And you'd look over there, and as you're walking through, you'd see they'd just be over there. They're off in a corner. And, 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 and I'd sit there and I'd go, okay, Calvinist, 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 Calvinist. He's not a Calvinist. What's he doing over there? And so I, I would, I'd walk over and I'd sit down with him. I'd go, hey guys, what are we talking about? And just get quiet. And just get quiet. Nothing, we're just, nothing, just hanging out. I had a guy that actually is a Calvary Chapel pastor today that was his first year there at the Bible college came into my office weeping. His name is Drew. And he got caught up with some of these guys. And they were pelting him with Calvinistic doctrine. He came up into my office and he was crying and he was going, I don't even know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm chosen. I don't know if I'm... And, and I'm just going, oh, this is infuriating me. It infuriates me. I, I wonder, what does it do to God? Because many of these guys that grabbed some of my good friends that were hardcore evangelists. They were hip dudes, man. They had hair down to here, surfer hippie dudes, you know. And as they would lead our evangelistic teams down onto Hollywood Boulevard, you think that's an evangelistic area? Place that you can share the gospel? 
they would take teams down there 11 o'clock at night and not come home until 4 o'clock in the morning reaching people for Christ. Two of these leaders, the two that headed up everything, became hyper-Calvinists and never evangelized ever again because they said, who am I to tell somebody if they're saved or not because they may not be chosen. Let me just rip, rip that heart out of the gospel for you. Is that really what God wants? And so my question to a Calvinist is, well, how do you know you're chosen? Well, I am. I'm, I'm because because I, I'm reading the Bible. Well, that person over there is reading the Bible too. Arminius is reading the Bible. Is he not saved? Well, no, because he doesn't believe in the way that we believe in it. And, and, and so, so I said, so how is it that he's not chosen but you're chosen? Well, because he doesn't believe the way we believe and because we believe the we believe this is how it all is. Uh, what, maybe you're not chosen. Maybe you're living your whole life and you're going to go to hell at the end of the day. Well, then that's fine because God will still be righteous. Going really? Will you not evangelize because of it? Here's the thing. Election, 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 election. That's not what Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are talking about. Romans chapters 10, 9, and, or 9, 10, and 11. <laughs> There's me counting, dyslexic. 10, 9, and 11. Here, here's, uh, here's what it's talking about. It's Paul going, Jews, you didn't like the way that God chose. Does God have every ability to choose? Yes. Who are you, he says, to say to the potter, why have you made me this this way? What, what, does, what, what right does a pot have to say to the potter? Why have you made me into a pot? Why have you made me into this jar? Silly. Don't you know I'm supposed to be better than this? A jar doesn't talk to the potter. Not that way. The potter makes the clay into whatever it is that he chooses to make it into. That's God's election. Chapter 9 talks about that. Chapter 10, however, doesn't talk about election. It talks all about man's responsibility and free will. And, and so, so all of that, knowing all of that, let me, let me just read here. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer, verse 1, and to God for Israel, my brothers, is that they would be saved. They wouldn't get so caught up in their Judaistic doctrine that they lose sight of who God is. And that's my heart and prayer here for you today and for those here on my countrymen that aren't represented here today that might listen to via uh, internet or, or you might take a CD to them or something like that who don't know the Lord. Here's the thing. My heart and my hope and my desire is that they would be saved. That's my heart, my hope, and my desire. That's Paul's. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Paul says the Jews, they have, they have a lot of zeal but... Having a lot of zeal doesn't make you right. You know, the homosexual agenda that we have in our country today has a lot of zeal, but that doesn't mean that it's right. It, it doesn't mean that it's right. Our, our government that is starting to take an anti-Israel stance, it, 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 it's doing it with a lot of zeal, but it doesn't mean that, it has to, that it's right. Just because you have a lot of zeal doesn't mean that you're right. you imagine... If you go to the doctor, and you you know you've been diagnosed, you got got a tumor, and and you go into the surgery on that day, and before they put you out, you say, hey, can I talk to the surgeon? I haven't met him yet. You talk to the surgeon and go, hey, you know I'm a little nervous about what's going on. Hey, no man, don't worry about it. I totally got this, man. Surgeon says, got it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're pretty confident? Oh, yeah, I am overconfident in this, man. This is awesome. This is going to be a great surgery. It'll be great. You're going to be happy after the surgery is over. Oh, that makes you so sure. Because, man, I got a lot of zeal. Good, good. Okay, well, I, I like that confidence that you have. How many of these surgeries have you ever done? Oh, well, you're my first. You got a lot of zeal. Um, how many other surgeries, how many surgeries have you done in life? Well, I haven't done any, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn last night. No, I'm just joking. But I, 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 I've, I've done a, I, I haven't done any. I haven't done any. What books have you read? I haven't read any books. 
I've watched TV and I've seen him do it on TV. I can totally do this. Dude, you're good. I can get this. Don't, don't, don't go under, you know, don't decline to be, you know, anesthetized, you know, because you're afraid of me because, man, I've got a lot. Of, I can totally do this, man. Yeah, how many of you would confidently go, okay, yeah, stick that needle in my arm or stick that thing on my nose to knock me out and let this guy cut me open? I don't think any of us would. He's got a lot of zeal, but no knowledge. And so here's the thing. Just because you have zeal doesn't mean that you're right. Just because you have confidence doesn't mean that you're right. Just because Israel has a lot of zeal, because the Jews, the religious Jews had a lot of zeal for God, doesn't mean that they were doing it according to knowledge is what Paul's saying. You're not doing it according to knowledge. I've been on the mountaintop with the Jews, Paul says. I've been on the mountaintop with the Christians. And I'm telling you, we have a lot of zeal over here, but I did it without knowledge. And I'm trying to explain that to you here. For they, the Jew, Jewish religious leaders, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And he goes back to, you didn't like the Messiah that God sent. And you wanted to think that you could find righteousness according to the law, but none of you can. I couldn't, you can't. None of us can, Paul would say. None of us are righteous. The, the, the law was not given to make us righteous. The law was given to show us that we're sinners that need salvation. Paul later will say in in Galatians, he goes, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. What does that mean? The law was there to show us that, wow, I can't live according to these 613 laws or the 10 commandments plus another 603. I can't live according to these. I, I fail in them. And, and so here's the thing. Paul goes, you set up this, you, you have in your mind that you're going to find righteousness this way, but none of us have. There's not one person that ever has. So the law was our tutor to show us we have a need for a Savior. And God sent the Savior in Jesus Christ. You tried to establish your own righteousness by trying to think that you have done it according to the law, but none of you have. You have not submitted to the righteousness of God. The second half of verse 3 says, the righteousness of God is Jesus Christ. You haven't submitted to Christ. For Christ, look what he says here in verse 4, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You can't find righteousness in living according to the law. You can only find righteousness in accepting Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's trying to say. It didn't make sense to me here, but now that I've been in both camps, now that I've met Christ, this is what it means Christ had to come, become, God had to become a man in the man of Jesus Christ. He had to die on a cross. He had to do this in order to secure our salvation. Guys, this is necessary. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. For Moses writes about, writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. Before I go on, here's what, here's what he's saying. Moses tells you, hey, man who lives according to the law, you're going to die by the law. James says you're going to die by the law. Here's the thing. The man who does those things shall live by them. Here's the thing. If you're going to live, if you're going to espouse the law as finding your righteousness, you better live by them. But know this, if you slip in even one little point, you're done. You've broken the whole law. That's right. Here's the thing. No man has ever done that save Jesus Christ. No man has ever can be justified by the law save Christ. And he fulfilled every jot and every tittle. What is a jot and a tittle? It's like the commas and the little apostrophes. So here's the thing. The little punctuation marks. Every little punctuation mark in the law, Christ fulfilled. The man who does those, right, Moses writes about righteousness, which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteous of fa- righteousness of faith, Paul goes, but, but over here, as I am in the Christian, Christian uh, realm over here, in the Christian faith, here, listen, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That's to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the, bu- the, into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Before you move into verse 8, here's the thing. He's going, I know what you're thinking. Over here, as Christians, now he's speaking to us as Christians. 
And, and, and not just Christians, Gentile Christians, but he's speaking to Jewish Christians because the Jew who was a very religious Jew who got saved in Christ and became a Christian, all of a sudden they went, well then how do I, how do I mend together the law and Christ? Well, I must be circumcised. I must hold on to every single law. I must do everything that the law says in order to be a Christian. So now it's Christ plus the law. So Christ just actually added more to it. And, and so here's the thing. Paul's going, don't say, the righteousness of faith speaks this way. Don't say in your heart, as a Jewish believer in Christ, man, I've got to, I've got to work my way up to heaven. I've got to be so perfect so that I can reach heaven. No, that's to, that's to bring Christ down from above. And don't say in your heart, I have to go through hell, if you will, in order to be saved. No, he says, no, that's to bring Christ up from the dead. What you're saying is, it wasn't enough for Christ to come from heaven, and it wasn't enough for Christ to raise from the dead. What you're saying is that you need to do it again. There's nothing further from the truth, Paul's saying. You don't have to ascend into heaven to, to reach God. You don't have to descend into hell to reach God. In fact, he says in verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near, even in your mouth, in your heart. And in your heart. You want to know how to be righteous? You confess. Here's what it says. You want to know how to be righteous? Verse 9. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is over all. He's rich to all who call upon him. For, look at verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Before you move into verse 14, look at this. All of a sudden, we've moved away from election. God chose this person. God chose that person. God chose this person. God chose that person to where Paul goes, listen, do you want to be chosen? Call upon the name of the Lord. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe that God raised him from the dead. Then you will be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now all of a sudden, chapter 10 comes into Paul going, here's a lot of man's responsibility, isn't it? How is it that you don't get to heaven? Don't call upon the name of the Lord. How is it that you don't get to heaven? Don't confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Don't believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Don't do those things, you won't go to heaven. But if you want to go to heaven, then do those things. Well, who's it available to? Whoever does this. You see where Paul's going? He's going, it's not a, this isn't about election and man's responsibility. It's about, yes, God chose, but yes, it's your responsibility. Do it. You don't get to heaven by doing the law. You get to heaven by Christ. The word is near you, even in your heart. That's why we say, hey, believe on Christ. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He comes into your heart. It's near you, even in your heart. In your mouth and in your heart. And so then Paul, he, he, he then takes the next question. He goes, so... I'm talking to the Jews. I'm talking to the Christians. I'm talking to the Jews that are religious and still in Judaism. I'm talking to the Gentiles that are Christians, but I'm also more so even talking to the Jews that are now Christians. Because you're having a hard time reconciling your old Judaism with Christianity. You're having a hard time with this. How do you reconcile the two? Paul goes, listen. How then shall they call on him? on Christ, in whom they have not believed. How shall they not believe on him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Before we move on, listen. How in the world is anybody going to know about Christ? Unless somebody opens their mouth. That's what Paul's saying. Those people who say religion is a personal thing, Keep your mouth shut about religion because it's a personal thing that shouldn't be spoken out of in public forums or amongst friends. Really? Let me just ask you this. 
That friend, that family member, that loved one that you have that you're afraid of talking to about the Lord, if you happen to see as they were going out in their car, you see some liquid pouring out from their engine right upon, you know, and you kind of go out and you inspect a little bit further and you, you smell the strong fumes of gas and you kind of get down on your knee and you look up under there and you see this gas line is kind of broken and it's dripping down on the exhaust manifold. And as you are sitting there, you look at it and you go, man, I got to find my friend and tell them not to start their car. Now, as they start coming out, as they come out and they're, they're taking their keys and they're about to stick them in the door, are you going to go, you know what? This is a personal thing. I'm not going to say anything because this is their life. It's their car. I'm not going to tell them that there's danger looming ahead if they start this car and drive down the road and that exhaust manifold gets to be so hot that it it, it, it reaches the ignition point of the fumes of that fuel and explodes this car. I better not say anything because I don't want them to be offended. No, I think that every single one of us would say, dude, you got, you got a leak in your car and you got to not put that key in the ignition. You need to get somebody over here to get it fixed. Tow that sucker somewhere. Let somebody fix that thing before you start it. We're more worried about them dying here on earth than we are about them dying for eternity. And here's the thing. Paul says, listen, how in the world are they ever going to hear? It's not, the gospel is not a personal thing. It's personal for us, every single person to receive it. But how can someone receive it? That's what Paul's saying. How, they sh- how, how then shall they call on him who they haven't believed? Well, I don't believe in Christ, this Christ. Well, how do they even know who Christ is? How should they believe in him who they've not heard? I don't even know who Christ is. Well, how should they not hear without a preacher? A preacher, somebody's got to go and say something. Somebody has got to say something. How shall they preach unless they are sent? You and I have been sent. Matthew chapter 28 says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That wasn't just to the disciples, that was to you and that was to me. We've got to go out and we've got to reach reach the people with the gospel. And then you can look down at your feet and your feet might look really bad. But in heaven, as you're preaching the gospel, look at what your feet look like in heaven. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. I hear Linus's voice right there. Some of you guys, the, the old Christmas story, you know, Thanksgiving with Linus, you know. Yeah, peanuts. I'm sorry, that worked with me, but... Was Charles Schultz a Christian? I think he probably was. I think he probably was. He did have an affection for a little redhead girl, though. <laughs> he actually lived out in Palm Springs. He flew a Cessna 310. I used to fly up in the air with him. I didn't fly with him, but I was in the air with him a lot. And his airplane was, was uh, November... It was like November... I can't remember what the three numbers were, like 888, uh, Charlie Bravo. But everybody who knew his airplane out there, they would always call it November 888 Charlie Brown. That's what they called him as he was in the air flying his airplane. It was pretty cool. has nothing to do with our passage. but um, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. They have not all obeyed the gospel, verse 16, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So here's what he's saying. Those who have, who have gone out and they've preached the gospel, their feet are beautiful because they've gone out there and they've shared the glad tidings of good things. Here's the things. Not everybody who hears you will respond favorably towards Christ. They've not all obeyed the gospel. As Isaiah says, the Lord, Lord, who has believed our report? So then verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Here's the thing. If you just go out there and just only speak your words to people, your words no one will get saved on. The idea here is know the word of God because the word of God will never return to God void as it is plain from your in my mouth. Every word that you speak in God's name, every word that is spoken of from the gospel, from the old, from the, you know, the law and the prophets and the Psalms and the Proverbs and, and all of the New Testament, the gospels and the epistle letters. 
Here's the thing. All of these things, the book of everything that you speak from the word of God, those words will never come back. Those are the words that have power. And now as we begin to speak and we begin to share with people, here's the thing. God uses our words to reach into these people's hearts because faith will come by hearing. I heard what you said about Christ. Here today, you've heard a a pretty good explanation, hopefully, of what the law was supposed to be doing and what Christ did by the law and how God intended for the Jews to accept Christ so that they would be saved. But as of yet, many of these who were religious Jews had not received Christ. And, And so because of that, they're lost, they're not saved. Even though they're Jews, they're lost and they're not saved. But it doesn't negate the fact that we are called to tell them. Because as we speak God's word, as we speak the the evangelistic message that Jesus Christ, God's own son, God in human flesh, lived among man for 33 and a half years and he died on a cross, sinless, He fulfilled perfectly the law for mankind, for me, for you, for every single individual person upon the face of the earth that whosoever would call upon him would be saved because he took your penalty and your sin upon the cross and he died. And he was buried three days later, or for three days, and three days later he rose. And when he rose up, it was proof positive, it was proof text that God had accepted the sacrifice of Christ. And he rose again. And he lived among us for a few days and then he ascended into heaven and right now he sits at the right hand of Father making intercession for us. And he will be coming again. But here's the thing. That's the gospel. How would you know the gospel unless someone were to have told you? Faith comes by hearing. But hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Now he's going back to the Jews. He's going, but I say, have the Jews not heard, Paul says? Yeah, their sound has gone out into all the, all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. He's saying, they know. They've heard it. They know it well. But many have refused to believe. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy who are by those who are not a nation and I will anger you by a foolish nation. Listen, this is important. I'm almost done here. So just stick with me for a couple more minutes. Here's the thing. He's going, here's Moses' words. This is Moses. This is King Mo. This is Moses who you Jews will hold on to and look to as as a hero of Judaism. He was the leader. Here's what Moses says. Moses, speaking on behalf of the Lord, he's going, Jews, us... I'm declaring to you a word from the Lord. God says, I will provoke you Jews, me and you and all who are Jews, I'm going to provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. And I will anger you by a foolish nation. Now to the Jews, if you're sitting there listening to that and going, okay, I'm going to be provoked to jealousy. How is it that a Jew is provoked to jealousy? Well, when I, as a Christian Gentile, sit here and go, I love the Jewish Messiah. I love God, Jehovah, Yahweh. I love him. He's my God. He's not your God. No, no, he is. He is. His son, Jesus, a Jew. He died for my sin. If it were not for the Jews, I wouldn't have hope. I love Israel. I love the Jews. I love them. Well, I don't love you because you're 
saying you love my God. And I don't think you love my God because you're not loving him the way that I want you to love him. And so here's the thing. I'm loving him, man. I'm, I'm raising my hands and I sm- have a smile on my face and I'm loving Christ. I'm doing all this stuff for the Lord and I'm living for him and I'm following him. And the Jew will sit there and look at it. And a very hyper-religious Jew is going to go, I don't like you doing that. That provokes me to jealousy. It provokes me to anger. And Moses says that's exactly what's going to happen to you in these days. I'm going to provoke you to jealousy because... God is pouring out a spirit on the Gentiles. He's doing a work in their life. And their words to the end of the word, uh, I'm sorry, and I will anger you by a foolish nation. We look at the Gentiles right now back in Moses' day as a foolish nation. But God's going to pour a spirit out on the Gentiles in one day. He's going to pour out a spirit on there. But Isaiah is very bold. He goes on in verse 20 and he says, I was found, God saying, I was found by those who did not seek me. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles. I was made manifest. I was made known. Manifest is to make known. I was made known to those who did not ask for me. I was made known to the Gentiles. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. God reached his hands out to the Gentiles. He reached out to you and me and he gave you and I life. And Paul's going, are you starting to see it? My Jewish brothers, we've twisted God's word to make it fit us. And when it didn't work, when he sent a Messiah that we didn't like, we put him to death. He provoked us to jealousy because he provided salvation to the Gentiles. That's what Isaiah was talking about. That's what Moses was talking about. One day, salvation is going to come to the Gentiles. All of this said, I know that a lot of this has to do with Jews and Gentiles and things like that. And I I know that you go, well, what what does all that mean? Oh, it means a lot. It'll mean a lot to you as as you go on in your faith. But it also means a lot to us today in what it is that I've shared. And it's this. When God doesn't fit our mold, what will you do with God? Will you make him fit your mold? Will you change him to be what it is that makes you less uncomfortable? Or will you, in spite of the, un, the, the uncomfortableness that you're feeling, if that's a word, uh, the, the, the discomfort that you're feeling, that's the right word, the discomfort that you're feeling in your psyche, in your emotion, maybe in your life, in your physical life, if what God is doing in your life is something that you wouldn't necessarily do, will you change God to fit your way of life or will you go, you know what, Lord, I don't want to go through this suffering, but as I'm going through the suffering, let it not be for nothing. God, I want to live for you. It's not about me, it's about you. And I'm telling you right now, the biggest issue that we have in this world today, the biggest issue that we have in our society right now, and listen to this, guys, and I'm ending with this, but here, listen to this. It is that we are so self-centered. It is about me and me only, the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. And what makes me happy, if anything gets in the way, I'm not going to espouse it, I'm going to reject it, and I'm going to make my own philosophy of life to where the world revolves around me, Everything is a satellite around me because everything centers around me. And that's where we find the most disconcerted, depressed, distressed life is when we focus on self, when all of a sudden we make life about us because it never will fit our mold. Everybody isn't going to jump through the hoops to make you happy. Here's the thing. The secret to life is to look in the mirror and say it is not about you and mean it. It's not about you. It's about Christ. He, God made you to serve him. I don't like what he's doing with me. Who are you to say to the potter, I don't like what you're doing with my life. I'm going to be very blunt and I'm going to be very aggressive right now. Shut up and follow God. That's not very kind. It's not very tolerant. 
you know what? In that day, when God separates the sheep, when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, he's not going to be very tolerant to the goats, is he? Well, they were genuine. They had a lot of zeal. They had a lot of sincerity. Why do you do such a thing? Because I gave them the way and they rejected me. That's not nice. I don't want to serve a God like that. Doesn't make him any less God, just makes you lost. This is his world. You are his subjects. I am his subject. Which means that I am to be subjected to the one who made me. Now, if he's evil, that's a scary thing. But when I see that he went to the mat for me just to give me life, I can trust in that and I can joyfully follow after a God who loves me more than I love him. He's not an evil taskmaster. He's not a narcissistic God. He knows that if you throw your glory towards anyone else, you're going to be blowing it. The only one who can receive true worship is God. Not LeBron. Not Miley. God help that little girl see the truth. Breaks my heart. Satan has just sunk into us. And he's ripping us off day by day. We've got to stop making it about us. It is about God. Paul says, I've been crucified in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let's live in that mindset. For that gives you a plan today and me a plan today. Amen. Father, thank you so much for today. And Lord, help us to do just that. We offer you our life, God. You are our plan. You are our king. You are our leader. You are our God. We are going to follow you regardless of whether or not we hit speed bumps in the middle of our life or not. Whether our life is happy, whether our life is sad, whether we have good times, whether we have bad times, it doesn't matter because our life is wrapped up in you. And so, Lord, whatever comes my way today has not taken you by surprise. And so the difficulties that I might face today are nothing compared to you. I will live in them and I will honor you through them. And so, Lord, live your life through me and help me, God, on a day-by-day basis, moment-by-moment basis if needed, to not make life about me. It is about you and you only. Now, let me go and live the life that you planned out for me for today. Because that's the only life that's going to truly bring contentment. And help me to open my mouth and help my feet to be beautiful because I'm taking the gospel of peace and the glad tidings of good things to the people that need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.